Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week it's my very great pleasure to introduce Frederick Forsyth. We're celebrating not a new book, but The Day of the Jackal, his first novel, which is 50 years old this month. Freddie, welcome. Thank you very um, much. Be kind. To start with, I mean, The Day of the Jackal is now an absolute kind of monument in the landscape of thrillers of the last century. But obviously, you know, when you were writing it, it wasn't yet. Can you start by giving me a sense of the world in which you were writing it and where you were and how it, how it came about? Well, it, it, I mean, looking back over 50 years, I'm still as bewildered now as I was then. It is uh, unusual. Most things clarify with a passage of time, but this one hasn't because to this day, it is an oddity that it ever succeeded. I think it was grossly unfair that it succeeded the way it did, not to me, but to all to Michael, the other strovers, because normally if a book's going to go that big, that quickly, which it did after launch, it's a result of, of years of struggle, of practice, of drafts and uh, rejects and uh, uh, a drawer full of rejection slips and several attempts at a novel and Oh gosh, you know, years of study and, and role models and trying to imitate someone else. And that. It shouldn't have happened this way, but it did. It, basically, this total newcomer, back from an African war where he'd been a, a foreign correspondent, fired by the BBC yet, <laughs> discredited by the Foreign Office, decided uh, on a whim, I suppose, to try and get out of the financial mess he was in and pay off his debts uh, by writing a novel. Now that, as a recipe, is as daft as it gets, because you know you just don't write a novel to settle, settle your debts. First of all, I didn't realize then, it's a very slow business. The writing of it is slow, the placing of it is slow, the rejections um, take time, and then normally a lot of, a lot of time uh, after that, uh, when the book is at sale, but slowly building. None of this happened. I. I sat down on the 2nd of January, 1970, and I just started to type. I had a portable typewriter, which I'd traveled all over Africa with. It even had a bullet scar in the metal casing on it where some kind soul had fired through the wall of the hut I was in at the time, and it slashed across the top of this thing. So I took the steel cover off and began to type. Um, and that's all I had. I had 500 sheets of white A4 paper and an idea. And then I, I dashed, or literally dashed off 350 pages in 35 days. And you might say, well, that was a good first draft. Look, it's never been changed. I don't know why. Not a line, not a word, not a phrase has ever been changed from that day to this, which is weird when you think about it. I mean, it's seriously weird. And then I hawked it around and I was so naive, I didn't understand why it was being rejected. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know about rejections. <laughs> I mean, you know, every author said, you didn't know about rejections. I mean, really, really successful people like Ken Follett had 10 before Key to Rebecca, which was his big breakthrough. And then I think John Le Carre's Spider in the Cold was third. And here was, here was I with my debut, shunting it from, from uh, publisher to publisher, wondering why it was rejected. So I got three rejections, which is nothing compared to what most young writers have to put up with. I withdrew it from the fourth, 
because the fifth Harold Harris at uh, Hutchinson agreed to have a look at it. Um, and he was the editorial director. And I, I, then I realized that up till then it had only ever been seen by readers, mostly students on summer leave maybe, earning a few bob and pin money by reading unsolicited draft manuscripts, which are so unwanted in the publishing profession that they are trolleyed down the corridor between the readers' booths or whenever they come in. And the readers are asked to go through this often unreadable manuscript and prepare a 500 word synopsis uh, for the editorial director who will then decide whether anything, whether there's anything that he wants to waste time or spend time uh, reading. And um, that was why I was getting rejected because each of the readers was saying to the editorial director, well, it's a story about someone trying to assassinate Charles de Gaulle. He was still alive, you see, in the, in the, the spring and uh, summer of 1970, he was still alive, he died in November. So reasonably, the, uh, the, the, the query was, well, what the hell is it all about? Well, how can there be any tension in um, a story about a man being assassinated who is still alive? And that was why it came back and came back and came back. Had this occurred to you when you were writing it that you were going to have to do it differently or that it was working differently from other thrillers? No, I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about the publishing world, about novel writing world, about structure, about chapters and <laughs> this and the other. I was just a total tyro. And, and I just wrote it, I suppose, in the manner of a journalist, which is what I was after all. I'd been for 12 years since coming out of national service. I'd been a reporter and then a foreign correspondent and then a, latterly a war correspondent. You know, we're both journalists and we know the rules, which are basically, you don't get many rewrites in journalism. I mean, the editor wants it, or the sub-editor wants it. <laughs> he wants it now. Uh, he's, if you're in a newspaper, there is a deadline, usually at 10 p.m. when the thing goes to bed. You can't just say, well, I'll have that back at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. I'd like to, to rewrite several paragraphs. So you get it right first time or it doesn't get printed. So therefore, I was, I was, my aim, if you like, was to get it clear and lucid and accurate. Um, first draft. I didn't know I'd done it. That was extraordinary. I just didn't know I'd done it. But apparently I had inadvertently. So what a fluke. That, that business of the journalistic side of it sort of fascinates me because, you know, one of the things your jackal does, particularly in the first part of the book, is, you know, he goes and he reads every day's Le Figaro. He goes and he's, he researches de Gaulle's personality and character in order to kind of inhabit what de Gaulle would do and how to get to him. Did you yeah. essentially yeah. have to do the jackal's job to produce a novel? I mean, did you do that, that work to try and figure out how you'd get de Gaulle? Yes, I did. I, I, I read all that stuff in the reading room of the um, British Library, the old Figaro's of the time, because um, I, I had been in Paris as a Reuters correspondent, uh, part of the Reuters team back in 62, 63. I lived through all that I was writing about. I was there at Petit Clamart, which is where uh, the OAS damn near assassinated him. I mean, they riddled his car with bullets. There were, I think, six attempts in all. They included uh, exploding flower vases next to where his car passed. 
Um, so the, 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 they failed, basically, uh, because, well, they weren't very good as assassins. And I watched them and thought... Were you on the spot when the assassination attempt happened? Yeah. Back in 62, 63, I was based in Paris, watching them happen, one after the other. I think I watched three. Then I was uh, posted to Berlin. But anyway, when I was in Paris, I watched all this happen. I got to know the bodyguard, his bodyguards, um, including particularly Roger Tessier, who was the, uh, the Parisian born. I went back to, to interview him, actually. And um, he, he was very forthcoming about the way they kept De Gaulle alive. But even at the time, I looked at them and I thought, I don't think they're going to get him. Why? Well, because they've been blown. They've been penetrating. There were, there was, the, the, the French counterintelligence people were very, very smart and utterly ruthless. And they had infiltrated the OAS. And so every time the OAS had a meeting with three or four present, one of them was on the government payroll. And that was why they were getting picked up in droves. Um, as as they only had to put their nose out of the door, bang. There's not a lot of interest in, in your old due process there, was there? Uh, no, <laughs> no. In fact, the action service, which is the special, special unit inside the SDECE, French intelligence um, or counterintelligence anyway, we actually recruited the Corsican mafia. <laughs> that is like recruiting the craze. <laughs> to keep the Prime Minister alive, you know, it's pretty dire stuff. The Corsican Mafia, um, as, as particularly a, a, a group called the Orsinis, were given as a reward virtually carte blanche on the whole Côte d'Azur for, for their criminal activities, particularly prostitution, as a, a reward. I mean, this is something you wouldn't get away with in, in Britain, but they were absolutely ruthless. I suppose they were justified. They were trying to keep the, the, the head of state alive. He was, he was going to be assassinated. It was unusual in, in most of Europe. But apart from Olaf Palme, I can't think, or it was one in Israel. Very rarely the head of government is assassinated anyway. And these uh, OS people were ex-soldiers, they were ex-Foreign Legion, and a pied noir from northern Algeria. Uh, and they were skilled gunmen. I mean, you know, they, were, they, weren't, they weren't just any old riffraff off the street. They were the top, they thought, they thought. Uh, but they met even better in the form of the action service. So I thought, if I describe all this, I don't think most people out there know this. So hopefully I'll be interesting them in some way, exposing what really happened and how it was done, um, the skullduggery involved. And therefore, yes, I did. I studied the Gauls and, and to, so the Jackal, this imported assassin who was going to use a sniper rifle, would pick his moment and, and the ceremony where he would try and drill de Gaulle's head with a bullet. And I picked the, the, the donation, the, uh, sorry, the uh, celebration um, of um, the presentation of medals uh, on the 25th of August, 1963, I think, on the left bank as, as the light, the light time when, when he would be available, visible, uh, out in the open, he refused to take any precautions to go and just haughtily stalked through, sneering at his uh, his tormentors and his uh, assassins. In the book, he's very, you know, part of the difficulty of looking after him is he absolutely refuses to concede anything to security. That's right. For his dignity. He, was that absolutely from, from life? He, yes, he was. In fact, if you think back, 
there's a picture of him stalking down the Champs-Élysées in 1944, the liberation of Paris, and the sniper opens up on that crowd, and they all melt, <laughs> except one man. <laughs> Ed stuck up in the air, great big hooter stuck out front, Kepi, uniform, two-star general, stalking down the Champs-Élysées, and his attitude was, screw you. I mean, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to duck, I'm not going to run. The ruse of surrounding him at the Arc de Triomphe with particularly tall officers, that was true, that happened. They, they, they did try, try and shield him. And he, he didn't know, they didn't tell him that they were doing this, but there's something all the officers around are about six foot three. <laughs> anyway, there we are. Yeah. Now, one thing you, you would have said, you know, political assassination is rare, or the assassination of heads of state is rare. You've got a, a bit in the book where you say the lean and fanatical colonel in Rome had devised a plan that could still bring the whole edifice tumbling down by organising the death of a single man. Some countries have institutions of sufficient stability to survive the death of a president or the abdication of a king. But Roger Fry was well aware of the state of the institutions of France in 1963. The death of the president could only be the prologue to putsch and civil war. Was that true then? And was it special about France? No, it really was. First of all, they, they had taken... Uh, a humiliating defeat at Dien Bien Phu when they'd lost all their Indochinese, uh, their three Indochinese provinces, Dien Bien Phu by the, well, the Viet Minh. And uh, so Algeria was lost, if you like, of the, the, their major overseas colonies. And it was part of, they thought, part of metropolitan France. Uh, it was passionate, uh, a passionate cause, uh, both for the French who lived there and for the army that had lost um, members uh, in this long, long war against the FLN. So when he came to office and realized, being a pragmatist, he wasn't left of center, but he was definitely a pragmatist, that the days of empire were over. Uh, something that Macmillan recognized, um, in, uh, uh, and uh, hence the wind of change speech. De Gaulle realized that there was no, you couldn't hold on to um, Algeria forever. Uh, they had half a million men in Algeria. It was bleeding France white economically. They were taking casualties all the time. And it was, it was a very highly emotive issue in Algeria. He quietly began to negotiate at Evian with uh, Ben Bella, the uh, FLN leader. This leaked out. Well, it was an explosion of rage. Um, and it wasn't just the Pied Noir of North Africa, it was also the, the right, everything right, right of centre of France said he must be brought down. Um, then you had the, the, the biggest uh, communist party in Europe, was the Parti Communiste Francais. That was obviously extreme left. So uh, this, was a, this was a cauldron of marching left-wing students, of marching right-wing fanatics, meeting each other sometimes in, in, in on clashes. The CRS, Republican Corps de Sécurité, as they call it, which was militia, I mean, I mean armed, armed police, was formed basically to break them up. And this was a, a country on the threshold possibly of implosion. So everything was, just, was, was at stake. Uh, do you think that that sort of situation is one that obtained still in the world, I mean, in, in, in the first world anywhere, that the assassination of a head of state could cause a collapse in that way? Or was that a special it, moment in history? It depends on the, it depends on the country. If, if it has a stable, if it's a stable country with a constitution it can rely on, then even 
the assassination of an American president, as happens, we know, in, in 1963 in Dallas, the country can survive, government can survive. Uh, there is not um, sort of you know universal chaos and, and, and uh, anarchy unleashed by the death of one man. In other countries, well, yes, possibly, but I mean, we've just had an assassination Haiti, yeah. Haiti a few days ago, and uh, there are other countries where yes, that it would bring the whole government down. But this is normally when the whole government depends on one man. In a developed and uh, experienced democracy, it doesn't depend on one man. He may be important. But the whole government, the whole country does not usually depend on one single man. In this case, I'm afraid it did. If de Gaulle had gone, I think there would have been a complete collapse of law and order. Out of interest, did you ever get the sense that the OAS had thought in the way you were thinking, that there'd ever been an attempt to recruit an outside assassin or, or, or thinking about those lines of fire in the old plastic? You know? I don't believe they ever did. I watched it and thought but privately, and I never vouchsafed to anybody what my private thoughts were. The only way they'll ever get him is with an unknown, well, I don't say necessarily foreign, but certainly a completely unknown assassin who isn't on the police records. Somehow he's off, off the screen. They've never seen him before, never heard of him before. They don't know who the hell he is, uh, but he's out there and he's going to get uh, the Jean Charles de Gaulle. He's going to assassinate him. And the French police, the counterintelligence forces, have nothing on him at all. And that would have been, I think, frightening for them. But I don't believe that the, um, the OAS Army Council actually ever went that far. I never heard that they said they, they were contemplating bringing in what you might call an outsider. You had this, as you say, you sat down with your typewriter and 500 pages of full scrap and an idea. Did you sort of have... You know, how much of the finished book did you have or did you sort of make it up as you go along? Because it's quite tightly structured. You've got these three parts. You've got the anatomy of a plot, the anatomy of a manhunt and the anatomy of a killing. You've got your, your clean-skinned jackal. Did you, you know, am I interested in how it came together or did it just come together as you wrote? Well, no, it didn't quite come together. I mean, I, I had been thinking about it for some time, even even out in the in the, the jungles of, uh, of East Nigeria, I, I thinking uh, about the story one day that I would write. But it was a, it was a, just a mental exercise. It, one obviously sometimes in the small hours of the morning thinks, I wonder what would happen if, what would have happened if, would it have been possible to, etc. And I just thought about on these lines, and I thought, yes. That could have happened. They could have. Yes, it was right. And I got uh, some contacts. I, I had contacts in the underworld. I couldn't go to the authorities because I was a complete non-entity. They don't talk to non-entities. So I had to go the other way. Um, I had to go to a forger to find out how to uh, forge or secure um, a, a false British passport. I didn't know that. Uh, I described it, as you know, as in the <laughs> fairly intimately. Yeah. For some reason, the, the British authorities never discontinued it. They never stopped it. They could have stopped it. Is this business of not checking death certificates against birth certificates? <laughs> yeah, yes. The, 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 the issue to a complete stranger of the birth certificate and death certificate of someone dead. Now, that needn't have, been, have happened. Or if it was being done for genealogical, historical purposes, well, you snip the corner off. And that makes it invalid for an application for a passport. It would have been a very simple little device. Snip the top right-hand corner off, 
it's a perfectly valid document for a, a historian, uh, even a solicitor was perhaps uh, trying to trace um, an inheritance or something. Uh, yes, you can have that. It's the birth certificates of a another, not you, somebody else. But they issue them, as, you know, as, with, without any any damage at all. So that could then be used as the uh, birth certificate that has to be included in a passport application, a first time passport application. And if you put all the filled out documents together, plus the fee, plus a forged reference and the birth certificate and post it to the passport office, en principe, as the French have, have it, comes back a passport. And, uh, but then not anymore, because the, the biometric passports don't work that way. It did work for 30 years. Did the authorities know about this and just not bother to close the loophole? Because obviously your forger friend did. Uh, no, they knew about it all right, because because I was rebuked for it. And I, my response was, heaven's say it's stoppable very, very quickly and simply and easily. It's why the bone idle authorities will not put an end to it. They could if they wanted to. As it happened, the underworld used that methodology, or the KGB used it, Stonehouse used it with, with the Markham scam. And it was only the, the, the alertness of Mrs. Markham, the widow of who thought it's odd that he was in, he, um, Sonhouse, my MP, was inquiring for my husband's death. And specifically, did he ever have a passport? So that was alerted her. Uh, she went to the authorities and that was how he was eventually picked up in Australia, all places. Having read The Day of the Jackal, possibly. Oh yeah, he'd read that already. He followed <laughs> to the limit, to the detail, the last detail. You said you were rebuked for including this detail. Yes, I, yes, I think. But by who? Well, of various people, not not to me personally, but I think in, in the media, there was a lot of oh. thing he's doing. Oh, you didn't get a knock on the door from MI6? <laughs> I didn't get knocks on the door, no. <laughs> <laughs> we, hadn't, we hadn't gone that far down the road to dictatorship. <laughs> but uh, no, I did, I did get rebuked in the, in the media uh, by people saying, well, what does he think he's doing? This is giving away state secrets. Well, I wasn't giving away state secrets. It was, it was known, um, or I wouldn't have got the details. And it was a very simple ruse. Just go to the passport office where other people's birth certificates and death certificates are a public document. You can apply for them. Now, your jackal, you didn't give him a name. Did Was that part of the conception from the beginning? No, I, I, I pondered over that. And in fact, it was originally, it was called simply the third jackal. And I went through it to the last page. And then... The last line was when, when Labelle was standing over the grave um, of this still unidentified assassin um, who was being put in a, in a pauper's grave in Paris. Uh, and the last line was, the day of the jackal was over. And then I thought, that's not a bad phrase, you know. And I went back to page one, wound it back into the typewriter um, and typed the words, the day of, in front. <laughs> that was that, how it got its name. Why, why did you call him the jackal? Again, I was looking <clears throat> at, a, at, a, at, a, at a, an animal, I thought. Uh, you could have an eagle, a lion, a wolf, something dangerous, the knight of the clan bear, um, and so on. So this, and then I thought, no, I want something different, something that's never been used before. And I thought he's very elusive. He comes in the night, he uh, kills, and he disappears by dawn. And I've never seen him used as a, a, a creature. 
who is basically a killer, a carnivore. So I'll use him, J-A-C-K-A-L. And then I invented the idea that he might, one, I only have one fluke in the book, I think, uh, which is that he's mistaken for possibly Charles Colthrop because C-H-A of Charles and C-A-L Colthrop um, make Jacques which is French for Jackal. Uh, and this man is suspected of being a killer. And when they find his flat empty, the, the suspicion falls on him. In fact, it was a false lead. And then any detective will tell you there are always false leads. Yeah, that was very, because uh, uh, as I was reading through it, I was like, uh, he has got a name after. Oh, no, he hasn't. <laughs> well, I have to hope that any listeners to this um, aren't giving away the spoilers. Um, in his introduction um, to the new edition, Lee Child, who knows a bit about thrillers, says, you're kind of, the reader is either rooting for LaBelle, the detective, or the jackal. Did you find yourself rooting for LaBelle or rooting for the jackal? No, this is an extraordinary thing. I thought, naive that I was, and I was very naive, that this cold-blooded, merciless killer, who would clearly kill a, a harmless uh, a French woman, who had seen a sniper rifle in his suitcase, and, and leave... Uh, you know, have, have no, no mercy about uh, strangling her, which he did, uh, that this man would be the villain. Uh, and this good, meticulous, plodding, sort of a, a, you know, honest cop would be the hero. I was quite wrong. And particularly, I'm afraid, among the, among the fairer sex, they, they, they wanted to go to bed with Jackal. <laughs> 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 he does find time to go to bed with people, which is... You know, it feels it feels like a Fleming-ish touch. Was Fleming someone you drew from, or learnt from, or admired? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. I was, wasn't getting near Bond. I mean, obviously, Bond's hugely, hugely much more successful than Jackal, but not as credible. I mean, he would never be a, a secret agent. Far too ostentatious to, to be to be a secret anything. Yeah. Uh, so no, I wasn't thinking of Bond. It was just a question of, well, basically, what Jackal does in the book is. What he has to do, what is necessary. He's got to get a new identity. He's entered France. He's been tipped or warned that they're looking for a man. Um, the, the, the leak inside uh, the uh, the Gaulian establishment has tipped him off. So he, when he paused with his car uh, on the where the road di- diverts uh, near Valtimilia, north to Grasse. And, uh, and, the, and central France onwards to Italy. He could have pulled out there. He chose to go, uh, turned left, drove up into France. Uh, from that point on, he was a hunted man. He knew he was. So he had to get a new identity. And he, he seduced this, uh, this French lady in the first hotel he came to and then strangled her, uh, taking her car and uh, switching identity to the Danish schoolteacher whose passport he'd stolen at Heathrow. Um, and and that, that was the reason why. But he showed no mercy, no, no regret or, or hesitation in strangling a, a perfectly innocent woman um, in order to steal her car. You obviously remember it very well. Have you? Do you periodically reread it? No, I never have. It's odd. There was a time when on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Someone chose, I think it was who wants to be a millionaire. Um, no, it was Mastermind, sorry. 
uh, their, their speciality subject would be the works of Frederick Forsyth. <laughs> I thought I'd got to see this. <laughs> the guy flattened me. He absolutely creamed me. He knew these sales and minor characters I'd forgotten about. He could name the the, 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 the chambermaid in this particular book. I'd long forgotten. So I, I haven't remembered an awful lot about what I wrote over the years. Um, uh, but particular, but the jackal, yes, most details of the jackal I have recorded because obviously it's been around so long. You know, you said not a word has ever been changed, and since then you've written very many novels, many of them as successful or nearly as successful as Dare the Jackal. And you know, you've gone through that process that you've described that most writers go through before they become successful of you know sort of learning your craft and going through drafts and drafts. Do you look back at it and think, oh, I should have done that bit differently, or I? I would have changed this. I tend not to do postmortems once it's out, or once it's been submitted and it isn't going to be changed anymore, or then I, I tend to leave it alone. I, I tend not to start postmorteming. Um, saying I should have done that, should have written that, he should have been that, etc. There's no point. What can't be changed can't be changed, and I tend to have a sort of um, what's the word? A sort of, a, sort of a mindset that can draw a line under the past, the regrettable past, if it can't be changed anymore, but has, has to be now accepted for what it was, uh, mistake and all. And I leave it like that, so I do it the same with the books. Well, I wish you'd leave it like that too. Freddie Forsyth, thanks very much indeed for your time. Well, thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.